Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Rachel Gow. Rachel is the director and owner of Dasson Kitchens, which forms part of the global Dasson Group. Rachel, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Oh, hi. Hi, Rachel. It's a real pleasure having you join us this afternoon. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast is to really, first and foremost, establish your take on leadership. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic, no less, and the need for leaders of businesses, governments, organisations and institutions to feel their way through what ultimately is an unprecedented crisis for all of us. Um, So for somebody working within your profession, how has it been attempting to navigate the last few weeks and months in your industry? I can imagine the challenges have been quite tremendous for you as well. Yes, it's it's been a tremendous time actually um, go through the pandemic. So first of all, um, we are sort of quite struggling um, how we get customers, specifically with our kitchen. Um, We highly rely on the meetings, highly rely on meetings on the side and doing the designing work, um, have communication with our clients. So all of them have to be kind of be stopped. It's very difficult for everything done online. It's not can, can be something done just on the phone call. Um, but um, put it this way, we have to, we have to. So we some developer coming with um, sort of FaceTime um, meetings with our clients. We show our examples by videos, um, by have FaceTime on the phone. Um, but so far we manage it all right. I mean, some of the clients, has a little bit technical issues, but most of the people quite switch on to it. Um, but it is, however, it's really, really slow. So a communication, you can imagine it, we have mm. to be with the clients and also with our designer because everybody working from home. Um, so everything takes twice as long or three times as long as normal. But we kind of still progress there um, so we haven't been completely coming down to zero for our orders. Um, and um, it's still progress, but it, it is very slow, I must say that. Yes, it's been a challenging time, certainly, for businesses um, all over the uh, the world as the lockdowns have caused them um, a real slowdown in uh, business and a shutdown of a lot of economies. Mm. Um, has you've had to adapt to this new reality and get used to new ways of working? Is there anything that you would say that you've learnt as the sort of leader, director of a business from the experience of managing this crisis? Um, I would have seen the most challenge for myself. Um, it's not just about the difficulty of the work. I think it's the mentality. Um, people who are working with us, we're going to be make sure that we've got workshop on the back of the unit. So we have to make sure people have a social distance in the working place um, and have to be highly noticeable or record who's in, who's out, and which side they haven't been to, have tracked them. Um, I think it's more sort of coming to a way how you sort of um, give everybody a positive sign um, and, you know, put a head down, still carry on to work, 
do care at all, um, but also have a sensible approach. Were they going to, where they're going to make sure they contaminate the place and, you know, make sure clean the hands every so often. Uh, I think all this put all together impact. I think it, it, it is mentality-wise, it's quite a lot for everybody in place. And for myself, I think it's also one side I have to be worried about quite sensibly how everything can carry on. But in another hand, I have to be sort of still promoting everybody due to sort of give everybody confidence to say, we're still going, we're still okay, we can carry on, we can go through the challenge. So for myself, I, I found that specific quite challenging. You've mm. got a different day, a good time, and a bad time. Um, so that's where we are at the moment. And I have to sort of um, separate people working on different hour shifts because the moment everybody working the same hour from you know nine to five, but then after the pandemic, we try to get people working sort of a different hour. Somebody working morning, somebody working afternoon, purely because of the social distance part. Um, and the whole place gets decontaminated twice a day if we can. And um, thinking about the fact that, of course, as the leader of business, a lot of people have been looking to you for that sort of reassurance um, amid all of the uncertainty, that little bit of direction as well that's needed. It is natural, um, of course, for people to look above them in the hierarchical ladder of a business for that direction. But for yourself, when you're at the top of a business and there's nobody really above you to sort of look to for inspiration, where do you sort of draw your own reassurances and your own inspirations from? Well, um, <laughs> in the beginning, there is also time, you know, everybody scratch their head to say, what do we do, you know? Um, but being goes through that, I think we just have to have a look at the future because everybody worry about um, at, at the moment, you know, we go through the pandemic, you know, we have to have a locking down, we can't move in too much. And I think at some point, to get into a point, I just fed up with all those at all. I just thinking, look, you know, it's going to finish. It's going to go through. It's going to get a day we just reopen everything up back to normal. So what do we do after that? So instead, we've been so sort of depressed in the first week or two. Um, very quickly, I have been speaking to my team, see, let's make a plan. So let's imagine that what would have happened, you know, after this pandemic finished, and there's just few people in the kitchen, and I'm sure expecting house associations still carry on, or the university still carry on, we still provide our product to the market. Um, we just have to be patient, being you know, finish that time. Um, and I think I found specific with the government in challenge, you know, with with all the governments was encouraged for everyone, you know, have a look after the business. Um, grant a, a different budget for, you know, like our typical small business. Um, it, it has to give us a lot to pump through um, to feeling, you know, you're not on your own. You you, you, you have um, people with you and there is going to look after you and there's more supporting around you if you decide to carry on. So we, although we go through a time a little bit up and down, um, but we've never been, I think between me and um, our, uh, my business partner, we never really sort of thinking, oh, do we give up or not? We never come up that question in the way that's really fortunate myself, feeling. 
You're exactly right. Resilience is so, so important. Mm. And um, mm. if you are resilient, it soon becomes, of course, clear that you're not alone. Like you say, there are places that you can look to for support, be yeah. that from other business leaders, from family, friends, colleagues. And it's mm. it's really sort of um, established a sense of unity, this crisis, hasn't it? That we are all in it together and nobody is well mm. as truly alone. Um, oh, thinking cool. about um, that sort of... Um, resilience now and that sort of positive atmosphere that's come as a result of this albeit COVID-19 has been a very difficult and a very tragic and sensitive time for many Um, for those businesses that make it through it's going to breed resilience it's going to build character this experience of crisis management so there are going to be a few positives to come from this as well aren't there definitely definitely I I do I do believe that you know it what it is, what it is, it already happened. We can't make any changes. Um, I mean, the scientists working so hard uh, to get them to get either drag or um, you know or, or the jab to sort the situations. I mean, and we only can do our best bit. Yeah. Um, so we've been so positive, carried on, you know, and that's a big pump up for our member of staff as well. I think first of all for them, uh, what they worried about do they still got you know. Um, which is, I think, that's a fair question for everybody. But if we told them, we're going to put the dance, doesn't matter, we're going to carry on, don't worry, you get your job, we carry on God's work. Um, and they certainly become very positive. And you'd be surprised how much um, people have been more effort or more positive attitude towards, towards to the work, you know. I would say normally if we give them sort of eighty percent of the um you know sort of sort of working um intention and now they drive into hundred percent because you know I think the positive attitude it is really making dramatic changes. I think you're exactly right. And if we now think about sort of moving forward, sort of keeping that positive outlook on things, what do you think is next for yourself, Rachel? And what's next for the Son Kitchens? And what do you really hope to achieve over the next 12 to 18 months as a business as we sort of move into the next stage of the pandemic and embrace the challenges of this new normal that's being talked about? Uh, We actually uh, will be... um the one thing for us, um, as we plan, basically our plan has delayed for three months, basically. Um, so as the plan for ourselves, uh, we were thinking to this year to start talking to um, all the house associations uh, and the council to provide them the, our robust petitions. Um, for there's um, for for council tenants and you know because the quality so we can um, give them twenty five years thirty years um, um, warranties of the kitchens of it so that's what we our plan originally in the beginning of the year now although it's a three month delay um, but I think that's still the direction we're going to go for um, you know to give uh, quality kitchens. Um, but look, go through this pandemic. Um, I think House Association is going to be getting more busier later on, and then our product is going to be more suitable for the market. I would say, um, and we've got some interesting package to come up, uh, which is they make a lease kitchen rather than buy kitchen straight away from us. Um, so there's this variety of uh, opportunity. I would say afterwards. Life is still going to be move on. Everybody's still going to be need a living place. It's still going to be need a kitchen, a wardrobe. 
Um, if people need to buy a new house, if you buy a new house, um, I think I think that that should be really what our next step. Basically, we've been delayed our plan for three mm. to six months. Um, I, I wouldn't see that much difference, but in surely next twelve months, hopefully, uh, we can get um, three. Well, the moment we start talking to three to five projects. Uh, in the road with uh, um, a couple of councils around the south area. Um, so hopefully we'll keep fingers crossed. Um, they will come back to us and we can get um, our next step carry on moving on. Let's certainly hope so, uh, Rachel. And, you know, I think it would actually be fantastic, given how insightful it's been having you join us today, to perhaps catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the programme just to see how some of those hopes are panning out and see where the business is at at that point in time. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. It was my pleasure um, to speak to you. Um, and I hope that you have a message for everybody, you know, um, over the country, I think if we head on and carry on, it's going to be fine. It's going to be great, isn't it? Mm. we have to keep calm and carry on Rachel you're absolutely yeah. right and likewise yeah. it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the other uh, programme today and until we do speak again um, in future do take care and do stay safe with all still going on as well thank you very much for time that was Rachel Gow speaking director and owner of Song Kitchens and coming up next on today's programme I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and of course Chairman of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now um, despite being blind from birth Lord Blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015 and I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time 
and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods. 
including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. 
those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months 
when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about 
proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government 
I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.